again, and welcome to the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the show where I talk to developers, programmers, and coders of all types who are in business for themselves, and I try to figure out how they got to where they are. So if you're a developer who wants to get into business, or if maybe you're already in business and you want to see where to go next, then hopefully this show is of value to you. This is episode six with Eric Elliott. My guest today is Eric Elliott. Eric is a distributed systems expert and author of the books, Programming JavaScript Applications and Composing Software. He builds and advises development teams for crypto projects and has contributed to software experiences for Adobe Systems, Zumba Fitness, The Wall Street Journal, ESPN, BBC, and top recording artists, including Usher, Frank Ocean, Metallica, and many more. He spends most of his time in San Francisco with the most beautiful woman in the world. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I'd love to chat about some of the stuff that you've done, including some of these clients that you've served, uh, people like Usher, Frank Ocean and Metallica. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences with them and, and what you did? So, um, yeah, I was working at, uh, at a company. So that was one of the one of those issues where uh, one of those situations where I took a job with somebody and, and I was working at a company. Um, where we built software for bands and that eventually became YouTube artist pages. So we got to, I, it was fun. I got to see lots of, lots of interesting bands come through the office and visit us. And we got some really cool uh, instrument de- demos from uh, instrument manufacturers and stuff like that. That was a lot of fun. That's great. Um, and so did you, did you ever get to meet any of these people, any bands like Metallica? Uh, I didn't meet Metallica, but I met a lot of, a lot of interesting bands. Yeah. That's great. Um, and so I understand you've got a music background. Um, you know, one thing I've always, always been curious about, cause I've, I've talked to a lot of developers who are musicians and what is your take on this? Um, well, I don't know what the data says, but in my mind, there are a large amount of, uh, developers who are also musicians. Do you think, is there anything about playing music, anything about musicality in general that has tie-ins to the development world? Um, maybe just in the way that our minds work even, um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I actually wrote a blog post on this topic because um, we noticed, uh, my wife and I noticed that a lot of uh, a lot of the developers that we talk to are also musicians. And uh, I did a little research on the topic, and I discovered that um, the areas of the brain activated by music are 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 the same areas of the brain activated by um, by programming and looking at source code and stuff like that. Um, and it turns out that, um, that a musician develops an enhanced sense of working memory. Uh, not that they get lots of extra slots of working memory in their brains, but um, they have a better uh, capability of chunking things into their working memory and, and being more efficient about how it's used. And it turns out that software developers develop that same kind of skill um, there's also a lot of other uh, interesting correlations. Uh, more areas of your brain get activated at the same time when you're when you're making music, and those same areas of your brain get activated at the same time when you're working on code. So um, yeah, there's an interesting correlation, and I think that um, music is really about mathematical structure. And when you think mm-hmm. about it, so is code a lot, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So even even just a function call, right, is um, you're using algebraic substitution. 
Um, and you use the same kind of substitution when you insert a phrase in into a musical expression. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of an interesting. Uh, also, both activities um, activate your your the areas of your brain used to process natural language and and stuff like that. So it's really interesting. Um, those kinds of areas of your brain light up at the same time. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I've often heard that there's this association between uh, music and math and and the way that uh, the two work in our brains together. And, um, you know, I, I, I sort of inferred that that might have some carryover towards programming as well, just because of the relationship between math and programming. Um, but that's that's excellent that you, you've written something up about it. We'll be uh, sure to link that up. Is that on your Medium uh, page, I guess? It's on my Medium blog. Yeah. Okay. We'll link that up. Yeah. Excellent. I, I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd love to chat with you a, a bit uh, about your your business, uh, sort of the business side of development for you. And um, maybe tell me about some of the, the activities that you're up to business wise uh, that, of course, uh, have to do with programming as well. Sure. So I've started a, a, a number of companies and um, and. I did software programming for just about all of them. So (laughs) um, er early on, I was a consultant and the idea was um, put me 100% in charge of your engineering process and organization and I will deliver results for you. And that's how I got my early clients. I said, I'll deliver results or you don't pay. Right. Okay. So that that helped me get early clients, get my foot in the door with little local companies. And then... um, I, as I succeeded in that, uh, I actually delivered results and, and helped those companies grow and, and become big, successful companies. They got acquired, uh, um, got merged into like great big Fortune 500 companies, and pretty soon I was consulting with uh, with bigger bigger companies and and doing some more things like that. Um, and then I took a job. I took a series of jobs um, for a little while. Um, and one of them was for Zumba Fitness, and I helped them. Um, I basically, I was their first JavaScript hire, and I helped them um, revamp their shopping cart. And I, I did the, a lot of the stuff that I did in consulting was optimizing uh, how well um, things sold online, right? The the sales funnel and and how well the user input uh, the user. Um, interaction worked. So the user experience. So I did user testing, usability testing on the shopping cart and like improved it by like a million dollars a month. All right. Improved wow. checkouts by about a million dollars a month. And, and, and not to, uh, not to take us too far off, off your story here, but what was it exactly, if you don't mind sharing even just some of the details that would have allowed for that kind of optimization, that kind of uh, growth and revenue? So it turns out that, uh, Zumba had, uh, even in those early days, it was a tiny little startup at the time that I joined about 20 employees or something like that. Um, but even in those early days, Zumba was taking off and they had a lot of fans and those fans were buying things in the shopping cart online a lot. Um, and, um, so they already had a lot of traffic. However, a lot of that traffic was getting frustrated with the checkout experience and abandoning their carts before they could check out because they couldn't figure out how to check out. It turns out that uh, a lot of that problem was just 
that um, they were struggling with the credit card processing form. There was too much on the page and um, to too much, they're trying to collect too much data on the same page. And if they made a mistake anywhere, um, they would just refuse to move on to the next thing and they would get frustrated. They wouldn't see the errors and they would get frustrated. Right. So what I did was I made the error time reporting real time. So I monitor okay. the, the status of whether or not a field was filled out correctly in real time. And I brought up an alert right where the error was made at the time it was made. Right. And that, uh, that helped guide them also as soon as it was correct, even if they were still editing the field, I would mark it. Yeah, you're good. Right. Nice. So, um, that really helped guide them to, to correct the forms and, and it led to a radically improved conversion rate, like Hmm. really, really improved conversion rate. And those changes went into a library, um, at the time, it's not. It was, it was a while back, right? It's not the kind of library you want to use now. But um, it was an open source library, and those changes were implemented across many shopping carts all around the globe, and um, probably contributed a lot more than a million dollars a month to uh, global sales. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, we often hear about the uh, importance of UX, and and of course it's important. But I've never. I don't think I've ever heard a, uh, a, a dollar figure attributed to uh, an improvement in a UX experience. So that's uh, just goes to show how, how important it is. It turns out even just changing uh, the, the conversion rate, the ability for somebody to process a form by just a little bit, when you add up lots and lots of numbers, like tens of thousands of people using that form every day to yeah. check out with like hundreds of dollars in their shopping cart, that adds up real fast. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I hope, uh, I hope you were generously, uh, compensated for, for that exercise. That's, uh, that's cool. So, uh, take, take us back to, uh, you, you'd worked at Zumba and then what, uh, what was after that? Yeah. So after that, I went and worked at the, the company building the music app. That's now YouTube artist pages. Well, it's been folded in as part of YouTube artist pages, I guess. Um, that was uh, a lot of fun. We worked on a lot of really interesting things. Uh, and then I went to a company that did a video technology, a video network that's still uh, used by 85 million uh, monthly active users. And uh, uh, places like NBC, CBS, BBC, Wall Street Journal. So, um, And then I went and helped build the uh, Adobe Creative Cloud, um, which is... Uh, kind of the, the, the subscription services for Adobe software and uh, also a lot of their online capabilities. So like when you do remote collaboration with Adobe Photoshop, something like that, um, I helped build the messaging system that, uh, that manages that. Uh, I'm not sure if my code is still live, but I helped build the uh, early versions of that. That's great. Um, and so you're, you're on to some different things now. Um, you know, one of the, the projects I see you've got is something called, uh, dev anywhere. And, um, and so, so tell me a bit about that. I, I take it. This is, uh, maybe one of your primary efforts right now on the business side. Uh, what can you tell us about dev anywhere? Yeah. So dev anywhere is a mentorship program where, um, where I and other mentors work one-on-one with, um, developers, in order to help improve their skills. And the mentorship is a really, really important part of the software development learning process. And a lot of people don't get it. And um, 
and it shows in the software industry. A lot of uh, most people that I that I interview lack really basic skills like the understanding of what um, data structure composition, object composition, and function composition are. And these are the basic building blocks of all software because all mm-hmm. software development is composition. It's this process of taking these big problems, breaking them down into lots of smaller problems, right? And then composing those solutions to form your application. And um, most developers don't understand the, the essentials, the bare minimum essentials of how that process works. Uh, and that's really problematic because that leads to overcomplicating things and, and um, you know, kind of pulling the solutions together with duct tape and crazy glue. And, you know, it's, it's, it's awkward. Um, so mentorship can really solve that issue and, um, and get into um, the fundamentals and, and basics of here's how software development works. And, and this is what functional programming is all about. And here's how you do object composition. And, um, and teaching, it turns out that teaching those basic techniques radically improves uh, software development um, skill sets for even people who've been working in the industry for a decade or or more than a decade, people who have computer science backgrounds from places like Stanford, right? Um, they can radically improve their their software development skill set in just a few months with a good mentor. With a good mentor, um, so we uh, we spend a, l- a little bit of time on that. Um, but I also um, I, I also build other software. That uh, that is ours that we own and and um, and I also have done um, like uh, technical advising for companies and things like that. So that's nice. That's great. Uh, that Dev Anywhere definitely sounds very exciting. We'll we'll link that up um, in the show notes, and and I'm I'm curious to take a look myself. Um, you know, one thing one thing that I wonder about uh, the model with with Dev Anywhere is. The, the mentorship model is, you know, one on one for the most part, I, I, I would assume for, for most mentorship scenarios, um, unless it's kind of a, a, some kind of group mentorship. Yeah. And so where does the, I suppose, the advantage to that kind of model uh, come in that that leads you to offer a model like that rather than maybe some kind of like, you know, big course where you could you, maybe you've got something pre-recorded by authors where they can distribute the same kind of information uh just to a larger audience what's uh what's your thought on that sure so we do both right i also have eric um, where there's video lessons available and people can move at their own pace and and work on their own and and a lot of people who like the self-taught kind of approach uh, will take that and it's also a lot less expensive than paying a mentor mentorship subscription because with a mentorship subscription you have to pay for somebody's time and the people who are mentoring are senior level developers and their their time is valuable right so um some people will prefer that approach and and that's fine. So we have something for them too. But um, the problem with that is that what we found is that even people who have subscribed, who who are members of ericelliotjs.com, they don't necessarily make as, as good progress or as much progress as the people in the mentorship program. And the reason for that is that there's nobody holding them accountable. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there's nobody making sure that they really did understand what they just read or they just watched the video that they just watched and, right. and helping them um, overcome the difficulties, the things that the topics that they're struggling with uh, grasping. So for, for instance, a video can't, can't realize uh, you're struggling with something and stop and, and try to explain it a different way. Right. Right. Whereas with a mentor, you can get that. You can, the mentor can pause wherever you're struggling and say, okay, let's, let's think about this from a different angle and see if that will help make it click in your head. Right. Um, right. Videos can't do that for you and books can't do that for you. Right. Um, and it turns out that if you miss some core concepts, then learning later concepts will be hard or impossible because you're missing that key piece of knowledge that you need in order to succeed. Um, and uh, so what we find is that people learn a lot faster in the mentorship program. Uh, uh, not only that, but they have a much better success rate. So um, they, are, they are able to uh, not just not just answer questions, but also interactively code the solutions. And, and we can see that they really understand it and they can, they can use it in different scenarios that use that knowledge in different scenarios instead of just like um, being able to spit back the answer that was in the one little video example they saw, right? <laughs> right. Because they right. have a good thorough understanding of it and then they can explain it to other people as well. Um, so that's one of the things that we do in the mentorship program is that we give them definitions of things and we show them examples of things. And then we say, okay, now explain it to me. All right. Mm -hmm. And um, that really adds a lot to their communication skills as well. Uh, and it deepens their understanding of the topic. So uh, when they can, when they can explain it to somebody else, uh, it also increases the value of that knowledge because then they can, they can share it with members of their teams and, um, and spread the knowledge. And it's, it's just a phenomenal difference. That's great. It's, uh, it's certainly true. I found it to be true that um, teaching is one of the best ways to cement knowledge uh, for yourself, right? Like if you are forced to reiterate it to anybody, even if it's just to, you know, the, the page that you're writing on, if you're making a blog, blog post or something, you really have to you really have to uh, to know what you're you've just learned, and 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 it's certainly something I found to be valuable. Even if I don't, you know, plan on sharing maybe a blog post or a video on a certain topic that I'm learning, even just like writing out what it's all about, how it works, definitely helps to me to cement it. I like the part too about um, <clears throat> about the the accountability part of of the mentorship aspect. Um, yeah, I I've been definitely on and off at the the gym for most of my life, most of the, the my life that I've been trying to go to the gym anyway. And it's just in the last uh, I guess four months that I I've um, finally gotten a personal trainer. And the difference is night and day because I I found that I'm much uh, better able to be uh, accountable to go to the gym if I have an appointment set with somebody. Um, if I if I have to be accountable. To to somebody else, I will go. But if it's left up to me, chances are I probably won't go that that often. So uh, that that personal accountability thing is huge for a lot of people. I think. Definitely. Yeah. If you have to meet with your mentor once a week, then when you're thinking about, oh, should I procrastinate this study uh, until tomorrow? If your meeting's tomorrow, you can be like, no, I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's great. And, and you make uh, much better progress that way. Um, because like if you pick something up and then put it down for a long time 
and then you pick it up again, you have to relearn what you were learning before yep. because you didn't use it. And um, your brain is really good at throwing away stuff you don't use. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Discarding it until so that it can uh, give free up some more space for whatever comes next, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, Dev anywhere. Is it, uh, tell me, tell me about how you're thinking about sort of the business development side of it. Um, you know, I, it, it seems like it, it's kind of rolling well and, and you've got mentors in there. You've got students that are um, linking up with the mentors. What are, what are you doing? What do you what do you see as kind of the important pieces of business development for Dev Anywhere? Um, so I think that in terms of business development, we mostly just rely on on blog posts. So content marketing. Right. Uh, and content marketing is going to be important for any business. Right. I think that it's a crucial form of marketing. We don't do advertising for Dev Anywhere. We um, instead, I have a blog that I write blog posts and we put them up and then we link at the bottom um, here, check out Dev Anywhere. I also have these books you can read if you want to learn more stuff. Um, so I think that that is our main business development activity is just like producing a lot of really great content uh, and releasing it on our blog for free. And, um, and that brings people in and if they want to learn a lot more, a lot faster then join, join up with Dev anywhere. Um, and, uh, I think that that's a crucial piece of marketing that a lot of people, um, don't get right. Um, so let me explain what I mean by that. Sure. Some people think, um, oh, I've got some development skills. I'm going to launch my own business. Um, and they don't really understand how to market that business. Um, there's a couple of approaches. You can spend a whole bunch of money on advertising, right? And um, that's interruption marketing, right? Nobody wants to be looking at advertising. You're... you're your introduction to that person is I'm interrupting you at a time you did not ask for. Right. And right. here's my big ad. <laughs> right. Or you can, um, you can write some articles and appear in somebody's newsfeed as content that they're interested in. Right. And they can jump in there. Um, a lot of the mistakes that uh, are one of the biggest mistakes that people make is um, maybe they're just getting started. And they think, oh, I'm going to write a blog post, right? So they do that, but maybe they haven't put in the time to really learn the topic um, before they do that. Um, so for instance, I worked professionally as a developer for more than a decade before I wrote my first blog post on software hmm. development, right? So um, at that stage, I'd already put in way more than 10,000 hours uh, doing the thing, and I was already pretty good at it. Um, and I'd also done a lot of writing before, right? And um, a lot of uh, the blog posts I see popping up are um, from people who've maybe been in it less than a year and they're just getting started. And um, I think that some people have this expectation that it's going to be this big success right away. I'm going to write some blog posts that's going to bring some traffic in and that's going to send some sales my way. Um, that didn't even happen for me after I'd been working in it for 10 years, right? Um, it took me, I think my blog was going for a couple of years before it really took off. And then it, then it exploded. So it's like a 10-year overnight success, right? <laughs> right. Yep. yep. <laughs> 
So, um, and that's the way that it's going to be for most people. Um, when you do get into content marketing, you're going to realize that it takes a little while for people to trust your content and trust that you know what you're talking about. Uh, and, and for you to establish a brand in this space, right? Um, and everybody is a brand, right? Every, whether they realize it or not, you're a brand. You can either accept it and work with it and make it work for you, or you can deny it and pretend, oh, we're, we're, all, we're all just people. We're all just humans. Well, humans relate to each other, right? Mm-hmm. And humans develop relationships with each other. And the relationship in that other person's mind about who you are, what you are, is your brand. And it's not just that mm-hmm. one person, right? It's the relationship that the whole crowd has. Right. Um, and yeah, there's the a great, uh, yeah, sorry. There's, there's a great uh, Seth Godin quote um, and I wouldn't know the quote like verbatim or anything, but it's something along the lines of like, well, what, what is your personal brand? People ask that. What is your personal brand? Um, what is anybody's personal brand? And it, it's something along the lines of uh, your personal brand is what people say about you, what the community says about you, right? It's not about some kind of logo you develop for yourself as, you know, a, a, an independent um, business person, anything like that. It's, it's, it's really like what people say about you um, at the end of the day. So yeah, yeah. it's like the crowd impression of uh, who and what you are. And um, yep. you can develop that in, in positive ways, but having a really great logo and uh, presenting yourself well online Right. And, um, and that can really, that can really help things. Right. And there's, um, it takes time to develop. It takes a lot of touch points before some will, someone will even remember your name. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot. It's not, they're not gonna, they're not gonna rush to your blog post. Um, if they've never seen your name before, then it's just mm-hmm. another title in this list of titles of things that they could click on. Right. Um, yep. So you have to write about interesting, relevant things that people are are interested in learning about. Um, but you also have to really know what you're talking about and write well in order for people to remember, oh, yeah, I want to check out the next thing that this person writes. Right. Yeah. I think, too, sh- showing up consistently would be a, a big part of that um, because you you might have a great post um, and maybe it gets a lot of attention. But if you... Um, you know, if if it becomes a long time since you've you've put out that great post, it's gonna there. There's this, you know, like you said earlier, the brain tends to make space for for other things that come along, and perhaps people tend to you know forget about that great post and the great author that put out that post. So consistently putting out content, I think, is important too. Yeah, exactly, and it's a process that takes a lot of time. Um, like even even if you write a really great post and a hundred thousand people read it right? They're going to forget who you are if you don't write another great post, right? right? They're going to forget about it. And yeah, and you'll get most of those hits at the beginning, right? And maybe (laughs) if you're really lucky, it'll rank in Google. And then you'll get a couple hundred here and there as time goes on, right? Um, But most of your hits are going to come right at the beginning, right when you release the post, and then it's going to traffic is going to dwindle and it's not going to be a very good marketing machine for you. So it's got to be consistent. Right. Yep. And over, over years, this doesn't happen mm-hmm. overnight. It's not, 
if you think you're just going to write a couple of blog posts and sell a bunch of stuff, that's not going to happen for you. It's got to be like consistent process, part of your, just, it's part of your business operating, right? Um, yes. And you have to keep doing it for years. And I've been writing my blog for years. And Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very important aspect of content marketing that, that people, people that I've talked to, I, I've sensed frustration in the, in that, uh, when they realize that that's the reality is that you have to, you have to be doing it for a long time, putting in the work for, like you said, years before you can expect it to be of, you know, any, before you can expect it to be anything significant for your business or your marketing efforts. It takes a long time to do this. Um, it's, it's definitely not a quick process. Yeah, advertising um, is way easier, right? You right. just pay for some clicks to show up and boom. Right. Right? Um, but the difference in how people perceive that and the difference in the effectiveness of it is just boom. Like if you're advertising, you're not, you're not doing something to positively build your brand, right? You're right. In fact, part of what you're doing is negative against your brand, right? Because you're interrupting people. They don't want to be looking yeah. at your ad a lot of the time. Especially developers. Developers, I think more so than many other groups hate to be advertised to. A little less. They don't like it, right? Uh, a lot <laughs> of them don't like it. Um, so, But they do like reading blog posts about code, right? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's a big difference. Um, you can advertise. It's really easy. It's really cheap. Um, and, uh, it will drive some traffic. However, your conversion rates are going to be incredibly low compared to, um, content marketing. Um, your, and you'll find that the traffic is much, much more expensive if you're, um, if you're advertising, then if you're doing content marketing, um, content marketing is expensive in terms of time, but um, the amount of uh, of goodwill that you build by educating your audience, um, you can't buy that, right? Yeah. And it's just not possible to buy it. Totally, yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, Medium as a platform for distributing content for 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 blogging, um, because we're in this era, I guess now. Um, from what I've sensed where people are starting to make a little bit of a move back to the personal blog and, and, uh, try to get off platforms like medium. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest objections is, uh, people end up finding out that their content made it behind a paywall on medium that they didn't know anything about. And they, they haven't been too happy about that. Um, and you, you post on medium quite a bit. I, I, I take it that it's your primary, um, sort of spot to post. Um, what are your thoughts on medium and, and where we're at with medium these days? So, um, what medium has done that is going to be really hard for you to do on your personal blog is they've built this, uh, this recommendation, uh, it's a social network. It's not just a blog, a place to post stuff, right? It's a social network right. and they have this, these recommendation features in medium and, um, and uh, about half of my, uh, blog traffic comes from in, inside medium. And, um, that's a big deal. It's a big deal because, um, it's not just half of the traffic, but half of the discovery is happening inside of medium. Half of people being introduced to your blog in the first place is happening inside of medium. And, um, and, and that is really, really hard to reproduce. Um, 
on your personal blog, you're going to need to have signups and people have to get people have to sign up for yet another account in order to opt in to uh, recommendations of your future articles, subscriptions to your blog and things like that. Um, and this happens automatically on medium and they don't need another account to do that. Right. They have their medium account, which is linked probably to their Twitter account. And they just automatically had a medium account because they had a Twitter account. Um, and that is, that's really beneficial, really, really hard to reproduce on your own blog. Um, it takes a lot of development effort to, to kind of turn your blog into something that integrates really well with other social networks and, and, uh, integrates really well with, um, with So Medium has a bunch of apps too, right? Um, They have mobile apps that show people recommendations all the time. uh, And it shows up in, um, it frequently shows up in things like Google's recommended content on on mobile phones and stuff like that. Um, It's going to be really hard for you to hook up all those integrations and and get all those recommendations going. And uh, they also automatically email people who subscribe to your blog um, and recommend articles that are relevant to those people. Um, And, you know, that's just a lot of work to get your own blog doing something like that. Uh, I spent a lot of time on my blog doing that and I got it up to about 10,000 monthly readers and I thought, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And then I went on Medium and it just multiplied by 10, like almost overnight. So, um, so it's a really big deal, really, really big difference. You're, uh, the advantage of doing it on your own blog is you are in control. And um, the the problem with doing it on Medium is that they can take all that away right? mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> anytime. And they're kind of doing that by kind of forcing the paywall on people. Um, and I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the paywall thing. Um, Have you been hit by that at all where your stuff has made it behind the paywall? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I was really surprised the first time I saw that I was like, wait, I didn't, I don't remember opting into this paywall thing. Yeah. It turns out like they're, they're making some changes that, um, that if you're not careful, if you don't read the fine print, like, you can accidentally publish something behind their paywall. And is it optional? Like, is it a, I it is know. optional. You can turn it, that okay. off, but, uh, it's, um, you're basically opting out of some of their distribution mechanism when you do that. Uh, okay. And it's gotcha. really, it's an awkward situation. I, I wish are they, they doing, I wish the medium getting authors more control. Like if, yeah. I could, if I could get all those great features and pay for that distribution, mm-hmm. like if I could yeah. just like pay a monthly fee, I would totally do that. Right. So that my readers don't have to. <laughs> yeah, yep. um, absolutely. Are they, do you know if they're distributing, uh, like funds to authors? Like, that's not something I was wondering about. Like, are they just, are they paywalling the content and then pocketing everything or how are they handling? Like, I think they are distributing funds to authors, but you have to opt into it. And then, and oh, okay. yeah. Um, I don't know how that works. I haven't, I haven't done that. So gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Uh, but back to, uh, back to the main point, uh, being the medium, has basically all of the tooling that 
is necessary to to have like uh, the the most widely distributed posts that you could hope for. I, I suppose, right? There's there's a whole bunch of stuff that they've got distribution network. I I was a blogger long before I joined Medium, like a yeah. long time before I joined Medium, and um and, and I was uh, doing all those RSS publishing things and, and linking up to a bunch of RSS networks in the, in the early days of blogging and, and uh, stuff like that. I never got anywhere near the amount of sharing and referrals and stuff like that, that I get from medium, not even close. And I was huh. actively hooking into like all those things, um, uh, the link sharing systems and stuff like that. Um, I was actively working on that, like, like just pounding on that um, distribution mm-hmm. thing to try to get more traffic. Uh, and they just blew that all away. Um, they, they're really, really good at sending you traffic, lots of traffic. Hmm. But um, if you're good, right, it's all depending on the quality of your content. If you are terrible, then you're not going to make it into all that distribution algorithm stuff. Yeah. Um, so, and they, they judge that based on how people react to your articles. And right. Like they can respond thumbs up claps and claps. And stuff. Yeah. yeah. They used to be like little thumbs up. Now it's claps. Right. Right. Um, but also they, they pay a lot of attention to how much time people spend reading your articles. And if right. they just like land on your article, briefly glance and then go away, that counts against your article. Right. That's probably mm-hmm. a negative signal. If they land on it, spend a lot of time browsing it. They, they highlight things. They like respond to your articles in the comments. They do claps, whatever. I don't know what all goes into their algorithm, but if you develop engaging content that people really care about and interacting with and people care about reading, then, um, then you're going to do really well in their distribution algorithm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it just depends. Yeah, that's interesting. One one of my biggest gripes, uh, maybe it's changed actually. I don't know. I haven't looked in there in a while, but the the commenting, the comments section, I suppose, on Medium, at least in terms of responding to comments that people leave, because I, I've got articles on there where people are asking all sorts of questions. And at this point, it's just for me, it's a write off because it, part of the benefit of Medium, you get lots of traffic, you get lots of engagement potentially. That's happened on a few of my articles to the point where I just I can't keep up with the comments. But when I when I want to respond to something, if I see it, it's just I don't know the commenting, the, the comment response mechanism there is not great. Like it's not a really good UI um, for it. So the, yeah, on the desktop, it doesn't take you to the comment that you're clicking on in the notification system. Uh, it doesn't take you right to the comment. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, There's, pain. Yeah. it's If you have hundreds of comments on a blog post and then you want to respond to one, don't do it on the desktop. Do it on your mobile device because the mobile okay, is better much mobile. better at it. Uh, okay. Right to that sure. comment. Um, but yeah. Good tip. Anyway. Thank you. Um, yeah. And, and so all that makes me think about uh, what what makes a quality post. And, and um, you know, wh- one of the things I've seen with your posts is they're very in-depth, right? There's, uh, there, there's, there's a whole spectrum of technical articles you could get. You could get like a little brief gist type article uh, all the way to something that is verging on a chapter of a book. And I've uh, noticed that, that yours... Are, are verging towards a chapter of a book in, in some ways. They're very in-depth, very long form. Um, so I wonder, what's, what is your thought on kind of like what makes a good quality article? Is it length? Is it depth? Uh, is, is, is it something in between? Uh, what do you think? I think uh, being able to explain something 
easily uh, and, and something that people can easily understand is the key, right? Okay. Um, and uh, I really do think that education is the best form of content marketing, in in my opinion. It's the one that works best for me, anyway. Um, and education or entertainment or both, hopefully both, right? Um, and I don't think there's any secret sauce to it. I think you just have to get the experience of of understanding how to teach a concept to a user or how to entertain a, a reader, and um, and that just takes time and experience. And I don't I don't have any advice for how you can replicate it overnight. It's not going to happen, right? It's going to take years of practice to right. to replicate that. Um, so, but. In terms of like what length, what content lengths, uh, whatever works for you, I think is is the right answer. Because I have a bunch of long form content on Medium, but another uh, one of the platforms I use a lot is Twitter, which is it started with 140 characters. Now it's like 280 or something like that, or some some magical uh, number yeah. that's around 280. Right? They, I yeah. don't think they specifically spell it out anymore because they mm-hmm. URLs count differently and stuff. Right. Um, right. But yeah, do both, right? The long form and the short form and, and, and figure out what works. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a good call. Um, I think it's important to be diverse like that. I mean, I, I found that to work well for on my end and I've heard it from other people too, that, you know, a diversity in, in the types and the amount and the spots you put your content in is important. So I think that is good advice. Um, on the kind of subject of of long form content uh, of books, I, you you have written a few books. Um, wondering if you could maybe uh, talk about. Well, I'm I'm curious about a couple of things. The first thing I'm I'm curious about is you know I talk to I talk to people all the time who have an idea for a book. They they like the idea of writing a book. They they'd love to do that one day. Um, but uh, as I've learned in my own experience, writing a book is a lot more work than people typically think it is, uh, when they set out to do so. Um, that's certainly been true for me. Um, I guess what I'm wondering if that's, if you found that to be true as well. And, um, yeah, like what, what, what would you recommend to somebody who says, you know what, I've got a great idea for a book. I'd love to, uh, to go write it. Okay. My first piece of advice is make sure that there really is a need for that book in the marketplace. If you are the thousandth person to write a book about basic JavaScript syntax, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to compete in right. that space, right? There's, there's already a thousand books explaining basic JavaScript syntax. So um, make sure that yours has a unique reason for existing, right? Um, don't just write a book because you think that it's going to help you make money. So first of all, mm-hmm. it's a lot more work than you think it is, right? I've uh, unless you've written a book before, you have no idea the undertaking you're about to get yourself into, right? Yep. It's, it's a long process. It's going to be a marathon. You're going to have a lot of editing after the fact. Uh, you're going to find you need help editing because it's not... You go blind to your own mistakes, right? Yeah. And you're not going to catch them all. And even with help from an editor, there's going to be some mistakes you're going to slip through. And... Um, 
And it's just a really, really hard, long process. Uh, and it's definitely not overnight riches, right? So if that's what you're after, if you just want to put out a book to make a little extra money on the side and uh, you think you can just write something and people will come and read it uh, and you'll, your book will be a huge success, so you're going to be unpleasantly surprised, right? <laughs> uh, first of all, you're going to put in a lot more hours than you ever imagined trying to... Once you get to like page 20 it'll sink in. Oh, this is going to take a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a commitment. It really is. Um, and then, um, you also have to realize there's some, the reason that I wrote both of my books is because I saw a big gap in the marketplace. Mm. Um, so for instance, um, when I was hiring at Zumba fitness, I noticed that the JavaScript developers that I were, uh, I was interviewing, um, didn't know very much about how, how to put applications together in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some of them had experience from other languages, but then they had uh, like Java or something, right? And they had no idea like how different it is in, in JavaScript organizing applications and things like that. Um, for the web, it's much different from organizing something that gets compiled and downloaded all at once in one big glob, right? Um, it's a much different task figuring out how to piece all these things together so that your page loads fast and they see something right away and they can interact with it right away while the rest of the app is kind of loading in the background or loading when they navigate to different pages. And that's just like a radically different process than what people were used to before. And then there were a lot of developers who came from a design background who just didn't understand how software fits together at all. And it was just like the code that they wrote was this big jumbled mishmash, right? Mm. Um, spaghetti is a good definition or a good description of, uh, of how they wrote their code. And um, I saw this huge gap in the marketplace. This was before a bunch of uh, books started landing about like how to build apps in JavaScript. Most of the books on the market were like DHTML. Here's how you animate when you hover the mouse over something, right? right. Um, and I realized this book really needs to exist. A book about how to put an application together in JavaScript really needs to exist. Um, by the time my book hit the market, there were some other books on the topic, right? Um, before I started working on it, there just weren't, right? Um, so when a gap in the marketplace appears, you're going to notice that um, you have to work on it and get out there fast. Um, and and try to fill that gap. I still think um, I still think that it's kind of a requirement to see like this is a this is uh, something a need that hasn't been filled yet. And if you can do that well, then your your book is going to succeed. It's going to be a good book. Um, that I I had that same issue when I was uh, writing composing software. Um, what I noticed was through thousands and thousands of interviews with developers, I noticed that like a lot of people didn't understand these basic, basic things about how uh, composition works in software. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand the basics of functional programming. Right. So it's, the book is like almost mostly about functional programming, but, um, but also other composition techniques. So it covers, uh, it covers things like process composition and, um, object composition, data structure composition specifically. Um, and um, 
but people didn't have a good understanding of that. They still don't. Right. Um, and now that my book is out there, I'm starting to see, like, I'm starting to see people like read my book and they're like getting it and it's clicking Mm -hmm. and the overall quality of, of, um, knowledge in the ecosystem is picking up after that. Mm. Right. So what I noticed is like, there's this big gap in understanding that needs to be filled. And, uh, I noticed that by talking to a lot of developers, right. What do you think that is? Why, why is it that that gap exists? Um, you know, I, that's something that I generally sense about the JavaScript community in general. And I, I sense like you do that it's that, that knowledge gap is being filled, but you know, I think there's, you know, when, 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 when people talk about functional programming, especially, um, it's, it's kind of easy to see where, where people are maybe coming to it fresh and maybe they haven't explored functional programming uh, before. And so co- things like composition maybe aren't well understood. Like you say, uh, what is it that causes that gap? I think uh, a lot of it was um, people got away from it for a long time. There were some programming languages that became really popular that kind of ignored these topics. So. Um, C came from a completely different, like very imperative um, way of doing things, uh, imperative and kind of uh, procedural, right? Way of doing things, and um, and that's the bottom-up approach, right, uh, to software development. And then we had um, Alan Kay uh, created Smalltalk in the in the seventies, right? Um, and uh, Alan Kay and a team of other people created small talk and that became a very influential programming language. And that introduced a lot of people to the concept of objects and, um, and then these object oriented programming languages started popping up. Right. So, uh, languages like C like Java, um, objective C, um, appeared, uh, objective C appeared first on the, on the next computing systems that were, uh, there were the computers that Steve Jobs developed while he was out of Apple, right? Shortly for a little while. And, um, and, uh, so those languages kind of ignored functional programming. Uh, they did not have first class functions and that made working with functions a lot harder than it was in programs in, in languages like Lisp, right? Um, I had the advantage of having a background in, in computer graphics. I, I, my first programming job was graphics programming and, um, a lot of the graphics applications, uh, graphic editor applications had a Lisp embedded in them, auto Lisp, because they wanted to be compatible with AutoCAD, which was a very popular computer aided drafting software, right? So I had the advantage of learning functional programming uh, pretty early in my career and, and having that in my, in my tool shed, right? And, um, and that was a really great advantage for me. Uh, it, but when I realized, I, for, for a long time, I thought this is just how you program graphics, right? I didn't realize you could program you could structure whole applications using functional programming concepts uh, until much later in my career, um, until I got deep into JavaScript. Uh, like I, I was even coding in JavaScript for a long time before I realized this is a functional language and I can do functional stuff in it, right? It's a multi-paradigm language, so you can do functional or object-oriented or procedural or kind of almost whatever you want, right? Um, 
in terms of all the popular paradigm, all the really mainstream paradigms. Um, but for a long time, I didn't realize that JavaScript was functional at all until I read Doug Crockford's book, um, the, the good parts. And then I was like, <gasps> the light bulb went on. I was like, lisp. I have a Lisp in the browser. I didn't even realize it, right? Something right. like Lisp anyway. Uh, Lisp without the cool recursion, right? Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, for me, it was like this, just going back to the ideas uh, from Smalltalk and Alan Kay and realizing that we knew functional programming and object-oriented programming. And now suddenly JavaScript is like this magical, much more powerful language than I ever realized it was. Um, and so for me, it's a lot of times the language that you're, that you're using becomes the language that you think in, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And in some cases, uh, it's a bad thing because uh, if you're programming in a language that ignores all those ideas, then you're not thinking in terms of things that could be very helpful to you, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in the process of writing composing software, I actually spoke to uh, Alan Kay, got some feedback from him on like, how should I talk about these things? And, and so you'll find in the, in the book, there's actually some historical context that goes along with um, how we approach talking about object-oriented programming and how we approach talking about functional programming in the book. Um, we look at the historical perspective. Where did these ideas originate from? How were they discovered by the early innovators and, and so on? And I tried to, uh, I tried to bring that approach to, to give you a more holistic understanding of um, how software development has evolved over the years and how thinking about those things has evolved. So I think that a lot of people have misunderstandings about functional programming because there just hasn't been a lot of writing on the topic for the last, you know, for 30 years, there wasn't a lot of good writing on the topic of functional programming. Uh, and that's because a lot of people were obsessed with Java and uh, object-oriented programming languages like C++ and stuff like that uh, for, for far, far too long. Um, it was just like not a big topic. And now there's like people, this, this wave of people discovering functional programming for many of them for the first time. And um, meanwhile, it's been dominated by academia for the last 30 years, which means that everybody writing on it, well, not everybody, but the, most of the people writing on the topic were in, in like PhD math programs and stuff like that, <laughs> right? Which, and it shows in the, in the available material online. Um, if you try to, if you go to Wikipedia and looked up, look up the term functor, you're going to be scared away very quickly. Most yeah, people will be, it's going to chase you away. Functor is a really, really simple concept. It's like anything, it's a data, a functor data structure is a data structure that supports the map operation, right? Mm -hmm. Like array.map, mm -hmm. right? It's not that hard. But if you go to functor on, um, on Wikipedia, be prepared. It's going to chase you away. The people, the whoever wrote the Wikipedia entry for that, or many people, perhaps, um, maybe maybe their content marketing skills need to be need to be upped a little bit. <laughs> well, not just the content marketing skill. They they have this. Um, they're obviously writing about it from a math perspective um, and and category theory and abstract algebra perspectives, and they're not realizing um, maybe there are other audiences who care about this. Right, right exactly. and those other audiences don't have the same background that they have um, in in 
math and abstract math and category theory. And um, so I kind of wrote my book with the idea of I'm speaking to programmers who maybe don't know category theory, right? And um, they need a little help understanding how these concepts work. However, I'm not ignoring the math behind it either. So there, there is math notation in the book and there are, there are mathematical diagrams like the ones that you would see in category theory books. Um, however, uh, I also have descriptions and code examples and um, descriptions that software developers can relate to in code examples and stuff like that. So um, I don't ignore the fact that these are mathematical constructs, right? Um, they're abstract uh, uh, they're sorry. Um, they're abstract data structures, right? And they have algebras associated with them. They have axi- mathematical axioms they have to satisfy. But I also write about it in the language of programmers. A mathematical axiom in the language of programmers is just a, a unit test, like a basic <laughs> test that the thing has to satisfy in order to qualify. Right. 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 So. So a mathematician will say axiom. I'll say um, you can write unit tests to test these axioms, right? That's basically what an axiom is. It's like a unit test for math, right? That's great. Oh, man. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're really kind of bringing together both sides in a way that most programmers can understand, right? It's not discounting the importance of all the substructure behind functional programming and composition, but it's it it's making the data accessible. I think by the sounds of it, right? You're you're really you're really making the information um, consumable to to those who need it most, right? So that's great, man. Yeah, like if you if you Google for category theory, you're going to find a bunch of stuff that's really, really dense and really, really mathematical and hard to apply to real life. Um, right. But if you look in my book, you'll see like a category is kind of like a type and mm. uh, a morphism is kind of like a function. And, and um, I don't just say kind of like, I also like relate them to very uh, more specific categories. So there's a category of types and functions and there's uh, a, a category of um, that, that category of types and functions can be lifted into a category, which just wraps an array around those things <laughs> or something right. like that. Right. So, um, and, and then the functor is the, the mapping of functions from the, category of types and functions into the category of thing, like things inside of arrays. Right? Um, right. Right. And then the map operation just handles these conversions. And, and I explain things in those terms where people can, can really everybody in programming knows what a type is and what a function is. And, and now they have this kind of mental framework for what is an object and an morphism in category theory, because they say these things map to each other, right? They're, they're related right. to each other in some way. Right. And uh, if you tried to go and study category theory terms on Wikipedia, you're not going to get that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that chases a lot of people away from functional programming, I think, um, just that, just the lack of, uh, of talking about things in terms that people already understand, right. Is what really causes the, the problem. 
Man, I'm excited to check out your book and, and we'll definitely link it up in the show notes so that everyone can check it out as well. Um, you know, it's probably a, a good spot to start wrapping up. Um, you know, one thing I'm, I'm curious about uh, your perspective on uh, as, as we do wrap up is, you know, for anybody who's listening who maybe they're not in business yet, but they want to get into business um, of some sort. Um, what, what's a good first step? Because you're you, you you've delved into business in, in many different ways. I mean, you're an author. Um, you, you sell basically a service that allows people to link up with mentors. Uh, you, you've done consulting. There's all sorts of stuff that you're into business wise. Um, if somebody kind of knows that, man, I want to be my own boss, but I don't know exactly what to do. What's, what's your advice for programmers in that book? For, uh, for programmers trying to get into business, um, first make sure that there's a need in the market. Like I was talking about when I was talking about writing a book, um, make sure you're filling a real need in the marketplace. Uh, and there, you might think that, um, that there are, uh, there's so many apps have been written that there's no new, new apps to write. Right. But, um, technology changes really rapidly. Like we're mm-hmm. currently entering into like a new, a completely new paradigm for developing applications on the internet. Um, we're, we're getting, um, artificial intelligence and cryptocurrencies and, and just dis- distributed ledger technology. And, um, all these new innovations are coming along that totally change the landscape and ha- open, up, open up lots of opportunity for, for new kinds of applications that were not possible to write before. Um, and that's kind of what happens as technology progresses. We can build on top of the innovations that came before and, um, and find new things. So first of all, um, make sure you're solving a real problem in the market, right? Don't just be another consulting firm that doesn't offer anything new, right? Um, maybe build an app that wasn't possible to build before some technology came along, like artificial intelligence or distributed ledgers or something like that. Um, find, uh, solve a real problem that really exists in the world that you don't have to explain like, oh, I did this neat technology, right? But what does it do? What what problem does it solve, right? Um, that's the biggest thing for me. Make sure that you have a real problem that you're that you're solving, and talk to real people who would be the ones who are paying you money to do that thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, what's the, what's the best way to determine if if uh, you're solving a real problem? Is it talking to people? Yeah, yeah talk to people. Like I, the way that I figured out that we need composing software, um, the book is by talking to hundreds and hundreds of developers and realizing they were lacking these, these basic um, knowledge skills, right? Basic understanding. So talk to a lot of people, talk to the actual customers who will use the thing, right? And um, that's how you kind of figure it out. And that's also coincidentally um, how you get your first customers, right? <laughs> it's by talking to the people whose problems you're solving and, um, and convince them that you can solve them. Right. So that's, yeah, that's great. Amazing. Um, well, listen, I, I've very much enjoyed our conversation today. Um, I know there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you're into as well. So, uh, you know, maybe we could have a round two sometime and delve into, uh, the, the crypto stuff that I know that, that you're into as well. Um, but, uh, before we go, where can people find you? Um, what's the best place to get in touch? Is it Twitter for you? Uh, you can follow on Twitter, uh, follow JS cheerleader. If you want to actually reach out and actually reach a human being. Right. Um, um, and yeah, follow Eric Elliott and Jess Cheerleader on Twitter and yeah. 
great we'll link those up as well uh well eric thanks so much for your time man it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh i will catch you soon all right i'll talk to you later Thank you so much for tuning in to the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. You can find links to all the resources that Eric mentioned at ecpodcast.io. If you've got any feedback about the show, if you'd like to suggest a future guest, or if you just want to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. You can say hi on Twitter at twitter.com slash coder podcast. And if you like the show and you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave a review and subscribe. And if not, no hard feelings. Until next time, happy hacking. Thank you.